So let's start with the rapid fire round. The first one is at what age do you want to retire? Oh. You can also pass if you don't want to. No, no, I mean, it's an interesting question that I actually haven't thought about. So, uh, I mean, the there's always the official age. Uh, then there's the when do you want to retire, uh, which could be later, uh, which, could, which could be also earlier. Okay. So it is a rapid fire. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so so uh, so let me let me uh, let me answer that in a very simple way. So uh, the question was that when do I want to retire? Uh, I want to retire at sixty-five. Okay. What's your favorite mobile app? Favorite mobile app would be. Quite got to be rapider than this. <laughs> yeah, um, because I mean, I'm so boring with my phone. That's the thing. It's fine. Most people said Google Maps. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. I'm, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say Walt uh, food delivery. How long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? Oh, 15 minutes. Most embarrassing moment of your life. In one word. Why do sentence? Uh, okay. Uh, when I had to uh, do skiing in, uh, in my military service. Okay. Mountains or beaches? Beaches. What's the most useful mobile feature you can't live without? Location. Favorite color? Black. What time of day are you most inspired? Morning. How many hours of sleep can you survive on? Gotta be eight. Fill in the blank and upcoming technology trend is blank. Artificial intelligence as a technology trend is overhyped. The city in which the best kiss of your life happened. Prague. Ah, okay. Uh, Android or Apple? Apple. The biggest mistake of your career? I don't hear that she's bad. Yeah, no. Right. Have I done any mistakes in my career? The biggest mistake on past. Okay. Uh, how do you relax? Oh, I, um, I play my PlayStation. What do you play on the PlayStation? Uh, God of War at the moment. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? Twelve. A habit of yours that you hate? Drinking too much coffee. The most valuable skill you've learned in life? Uh, speaking English, English. City or countryside? City. And the last one is your favorite Netflix show. Does it have to be Netflix? Any, any, can be any platform. Okay, at the moment it's going to be the, the Last of Us on HBO. Okay. All right, so that was the end of the rapid fire round. Now we're going to go on to the bigger questions. Okay. Uh, so as a veteran in financial technology and payments, what are some key trends you are seeing in the industry currently? Currently, it's a lot about the evolution of the regulation that defines financial services. So we're, we're seeing uh, companies that are not banks entering uh, this space. And uh, this uh, is in creating a new conversation around what we call embedded financial services. In this embedded financial services, basically any 
uh, user experience, any application can have payments, even financing and, and other financial services as part of that user experience. So it, you don't jump you don't jump to do your banking. Uh, it's the, the, the financial service just become a natural part of everything. And because of this new distribution mechanism of, of, of financial services, uh, there's a lot of conversation around what is the role of a bank? What, how do you regulate? How do you control? And how do you create security around these embedded experiences uh, for users so that everything becomes easy, but at the same time safe? That is not the number one trend that I'm looking at at the moment. Uh, the, the second big trend that we're, that we're working on actively on is uh, central bank uh, digital currencies. So the, uh, the central banks traditionally have only uh, given physical cash out uh, for regular citizens like you and me to use. Uh, and other than that, uh, everything is dealt through the banks. With central bank digital currency conversation going on right now, the uh, central banks want to understand is it possible to create a digital equivalent uh, of physical cash in an online world. The central banks want to protect uh, the public option uh, for any payment mechanism now that physical cash is diminishing in, in uh, its usability. So in, in an online environment, there is a good question to be asked. What is the role of a central bank in these online environments where physical cash cannot be used? So that's, that's the second big trend uh, that, of course, we're, we're quite keen on, uh, keen on uh, following at the moment. The third one uh, is collaborative infrastructure. That sounds a little bit nerdy and boring, I know, but uh, it, it's, uh, in practice it means things like digital identity, uh, payment interoperability, the ability to basically send, to send payments from, from one uh, account to another account without ever thinking about where the other account, for example, is. In the world of uh, mobile phones and mobile technology, this is already true. I mean, I can, I can dial a number, I can send a WhatsApp message to a number without ever thinking uh, if the other side uh, is on my same network, for example, or not. We want to achieve this same goal uh, in financial services as well. And I think this common infrastructure is making this happen. And the interoperability is, uh, is a key topic that we need to address uh, in the financial sector in general. And so what is a trend that is overhyped, but you don't think it's a trend? Oh, so uh, artificial intelligence in general has been overhyped uh, throughout its existence, basically. So if you, if you look at the history of artificial intelligence, uh, in the, the artificial intelligence uh, conversation started, I guess the first hype cycle was around the 80s, uh, when there was first computers came around. And uh, the artificial intelligence, of course, failed to materialize beyond simple uh, chatbots effectively. Now we're seeing another wave uh, of hype around artificial intelligence. And I, I think the, uh, uh, while some of the applications are very impressive, including the well-known chat GPT, which everybody keeps on talking about, uh, I think the, uh, there's, as always, the, uh, the overhyping of, of its capabilities is, is quite clear uh, already at this stage. Uh, at the same time, um, having gone through a lot of these uh, hype cycles before. So uh, there was a hype cycle around blockchain technologies, for example, cryptocurrencies, all of these things. None of them have, act have actually uh, delivered uh, on their huge promises of uh, upending the world, basically. Uh, and we've seen this go, go away. But as with blockchain, as with mobile uh, applications and mobile payments, uh, and as we're seeing right now with artificial intelligence and more specifically generative AI, uh, there's going to be something after this hype that will actually move things forward. 
So I don't dismiss it entirely, of course, I don't. Uh, there are use, useful applications for generative AI uh, in, the, in the near future, for sure. But uh, I think it's quite clear that the, uh, this gen general uh, artificial intelligence uh, that will uh, make a, a lot of creative work completely redundant, for example, is, uh, is probably not going to be happening to the extent that people are saying it will. Okay. Uh, so what role do you see technology playing in driving financial inclusion and expanding access to digital financial services for undeserved communities or underserved communities? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. That's, uh, that is exactly what we are working on uh, at Ericsson, uh, uh, Mobile Financial Services, which is the unit that I uh, represent at Ericsson. Uh, the uh, ability to, uh, or the technology allows uh, uh, institutions that are maybe not banks or non-bank non institutions to offer financial services to people uh, that the banks uh, either cannot or don't want to serve uh, in a lot of countries. As we know, uh, especially in the emerging economies like uh, uh, of Africa, for example, there is a large part uh, parts of population that only deal with cash and they don't really have access to the uh, formal banking system due to the heavy onboarding uh, cost uh, of, of, these, uh, of these individuals. There's also the scarcity of, uh, of a basic banking service infrastructure in, in a, lot of the, a lot of these places. But on the other hand, the, the mobile operators are everywhere in these countries. So there are, uh, there's uh, an interesting uh, statistic that there are, there are more mobile phones than toothbrushes in the world <laughs> yeah, uh, even today. And uh, while that's not a comment on dental hygiene, it's actually a comment about that everybody has a mobile phone uh, pretty much in this world. And that mobile phone can be used to access the financial system now because the, the cost of uh, getting these people uh, to use their money through their mobile phones is much, much lower than it is to, uh, to open an, a real physical bank account uh, for each of these individuals. These uh, mobile operators are driving this, uh, especially in Africa, we've seen a phenomenal increase in financial inclusion inclusion uh, happening in those countries where mobile operators have taken the role uh, of offering financial services uh, to these this underbanked uh, citizens. Okay. Uh, how do you balance the need for innovation and rapid development in the financial technology space with the importance of security and privacy for consumers? That's a really good question. So the, uh, have it, uh, I've been working in, in the financial sector for more than 20 years and more or less I've been in, always working in, in roles where, I, uh, where I, I try to push the envelope a little bit forward, uh, whether that is uh, in a role in an innovation lab uh, in a bank uh, or as a business developer uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, technology companies. I've been always kind of looking at that next big thing and trying to move, move things forward. The, uh, the unfortunate fact is that innovation is completely against the principles of regulated financial institutions. So uh, people say that it's almost impossible to, to really innovate uh, in banks and they are resisting innovation. Uh, some, some people say that it's, a, uh, that it's a bug, but no, actually that is a feature. The, these institutions are built to resist change because they need to be very stable and they need to change slow in order to in order to maintain the foundations of trust that they have built uh, in many cases uh, over uh, decades or even hundreds of years. So this slowness is again by design. So the processes, the, the supervision, the regulation is defining these processes to be very slow. 
But to answer the question, how do you mix innovation and rapid development in, the, in those pictures? Well, the, the development processes, the agile methodologies, the, the rapid development is already making its way into a lot of, uh, a lot of the financial sector companies, including technology companies and, uh, and banks. So that change uh, is happening. That will give more uh, agility into the processes where, when they, uh, when they uh, create new things. But as far as the innovation part goes, so basically bringing in new ideas, new ways of doing things into banks, the, the, the best way to do this actually is not to build on that legacy infrastructure. It is actually to create a separate entity uh, and create the, uh, the processes, the governance and the technology for basically from scratch on the side of the existing close, but on the side of the existing stack in these financial service companies. And then... Uh, gradually, organically uh, integrate those new ideas, those new platforms, new technologies into the mainstream banking, uh, but without touching the old core uh, too much. There are interesting examples uh, of different banks. One of my favorite example is, uh, uh, is the Swedish bank SCB. They started an innovation lab called SCBX, where they built everything from scratch. Uh, and now the SCBX that they built uh, is uh, is a new business line for uh, for SCB called SCB Embedded, referring to the embedded finance trend that we talked about uh, a little earlier. So so I think this kind of on the side development while respecting the uh, security regulation uh, is an interesting way of bringing a new innovation into these banks. And what's your as a, what's your, what are your thoughts in, with regards to this for uh, banks like Revolut and all these tech-focused banks? I think the the fintech uh, like Revolut with uh, that started with an yeah, electronic money license and now lately it has become a fully licensed bank uh, at least in some jurisdictions. Uh, these are companies that started their journey from from scratch. So they started building from nothing. They brought in. Uh, services and partners, of course, but again, they had the they had the luxury of starting from zero and building uh, digital first, uh, no branch type of uh, type of uh, financial services experiences, and uh, that gave them uh, a lot of uh, rapid development speed in the beginning. Now it's going to be interesting to see how these uh, businesses like Revolut, like Klarna, many of these very well-known uh, fintech companies are going to scale uh, and be profitable in the future. They have created the culture of rapid development innovation because they had the luxury of a clean slate when they started. Uh, but uh, again, ultimately, all of these companies will become <laughs> legacy companies. Uh, and that is the time when they, when they need to uh, see how can they maintain this, uh, this uh, DNA of, of rapid development and uh, innovation while being profitable, secure uh, and trustworthy uh, for their customers. The, uh, the abundance of venture capital uh, in this uh, fintech space has allowed a lot of these players to scale without giving too much thought about being profitable. Uh, and now that we're seeing the uh, economic change or downturn happening, uh, a lot of the capital might not be as easily available anymore. Uh, so we're going to see the coming uh, years are going to be quite interesting uh, to see how, who is, the, who is uh, going to well thrive uh, in these new circumstances. <laughs> yeah, so... So I guess, uh, I guess uh, uh, who was it who said that uh, uh, when the tide goes down, you, you will notice who is swimming without uh, swim, swim trunks. So I think this is going to happen as well. You don't feel, well, I suppose thematically, there's also a chance that the bigger fish might not be able to swim and the smaller ones might just be able to get out. <laughs> yeah, it remains to be seen. I, I think that, that uh, this kind of upending of the existing 
uh, banking infrastructure and the end of, of uh, these incumbent banks has been prophesized for, for a very, very long time. When the fintech boom started for the first time around 2000, uh, well, actually after the, uh, the crash around 2008, uh, I guess that was the official start of the fintech boom. A lot of these uh, fintechs came to the market with the, with the idea of, uh, well, we're going to disrupt the banks. We're going to make sure that these banks in five years, we, you will no longer be using banks. You will be just using fintech companies to replace your existing banking experiences. This has not happened. Uh, and if you listen to the fintechs talking now, uh, they talk a lot about co cooperate, cooperating, collaborating, and even partnering uh, with banks instead of uh, trying to fight uh, against them. Now, does this mean that the, the banks will always be there? I don't know. I mean, I think it's anybody's guess. But if you look at the, uh, the trends so far, the banks seem to be doing quite well uh, in despite of everything. And uh, I think uh, the role of a bank will change uh, to be more of a trusted provider, the anchor uh, in, the, uh, in the regulated environment. But then the distribution mechanisms might be happening through new, new ways uh, like, like fintechs and even mobile operators uh, in some countries. Okay. Uh, so as a member of the European Central Bank uh, Digital Euro Market Advisory Group, uh, can you share your insights on the potential impact of digital currencies on the financial industry and society at large? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, central bank digital currencies, like I mentioned, was one of the, the main trends uh, that we're following at the moment. And uh, the, uh, from the ECB or European Central Bank's perspective, the digital euro uh, is a way uh, to basically replace, well not actually replace, I would say augment uh, the physical cash element of central bank money. Uh, the uh, the large, large parts of the European economies, uh, especially in Northern Europe, have already moved into practically cashless uh, economies. So you will, if you go to Stockholm, Helsinki, Oslo, Copenhagen, uh, you, you, don't, you don't see ATMs any, uh, anywhere, you don't see people using cash, everybody's using one, some way of electronic uh, or mobile payments everywhere you go. And while this is great, of course, cash in, in a sense is a very inefficient way of transacting with, with, with value, the downside of that is that all of these solutions uh, are being provided by private actors, and these private actors are sometimes uh, multinational uh, corporations uh, that, that don't really have a European uh, heritage uh, with them. So while this is actually great from a global economy standpoint, there is always the uh, argument to be made that you need options. Uh, you need uh, also uh, sovereignty uh, to a certain extent for crit critical infrastructure. So the uh, central banks are seeing this, uh, the central bank digital currencies as a way to provide a, a, a public uh, option for these private uh, tools for payments. And uh, I think that's I think that's actually a pretty good idea. The the resilience factor uh, that that actually creates the balance uh, that will that will be there for because of this optionality uh, is something that is uh, is a goal worth uh, worth achieving for sure. The other element of of central bank digital currencies, like the uh, the uh, potentially upcoming digital euro, is the financial inclusion angle. The uh, one of the clear goals uh, of, of many of the central banks is to make sure that uh, everybody has access to digital cash or digital money uh, through this central bank digital currency, uh, which might not necessarily be true when we're, you're only dealing with public uh, private options for, uh, for electronic payments. 
I already mentioned that mobile operators, especially in places like Africa, have already uh, done a lot of work, a lot of good work in financial inclusion uh, and making sure that people have access to the financial infrastructure. Uh, these models are also being recognized by central banks uh, and they, they want to ensure that uh, everybody will have access uh, to, the, uh, to the financial system uh, with, with this public option uh, as well. And do you see any downsides to this digitization of the currency? Yeah, so the, the downside of a central bank digital currency uh, is, is basically that it's practically impossible for an average uh, citizen uh, that doesn't know anything, uh, too much about the financial system to differentiate what actually is a central bank money and what is commercial bank money and does it even matter. Uh, the dual role of the central bank is to, is to also ensure the stability of the financial system so that they will never go against or compete with commercial bank money. The whole idea is to augment the existing system. That also means that uh, a central bank uh, euro uh, or the commercial bank euro, they look exactly the same and will have the exact same value uh, and only the account itself will look a little bit different. So the downside really is that in practice, if you're, if you're using card payments on, on a day-to-day -day basis and you don't really pay much uh, for these for this transactions anyway, uh, there's not much to differentiate on the, on the, on the uh, central bank uh, side of things. So that is a challenge and a, and a downside of this entire conversation. Are we just creating more complexity that might not be even necessary just because there's a policy question, there's a policy question here? I think that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, dilemma uh, that uh, the central banks are actually trying to tackle uh, as well by being very clear about this communication and what, what is it and what it is it's not. So maybe that, that's one thing. The second thing, of course, is that because we're dealing with a regulated financial system, uh, the, uh, there's never going to be uh, this uh, uh, of uh, full anonymity uh, of transactions in the central bank system. Because, you need, because the central banks need to maintain the financial stability and need to, need to fight financial crime, they need to find, uh, uh, fight money laundering and terrorist financing. For these reasons, there was, while there always is, will be a high level of privacy in these transactions, which is great, the full anonymity uh, will probably never be there uh, to the extent that people have achieved with physical cash uh, today. So while they are creating a digital equivalent of, uh, of a physical cash payment, uh, that fully anonymous nature uh, will not be achieved. So uh, this uh, is, is a bit of a downside uh, from a central bank's uh, standpoint because they cannot deliver on that promise uh, within the constraints of the existing system. Uh, what are some potential risks and benefits associated with the concept of anonymity and digital identity? And how do you think these can be addressed? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, direct <laughs> direct connection to the to the previous question, of course. And the uh, the uh, the full anonymity in, in the financial system, of course, uh, is practically impossible to be done uh, because the uh, because it will be extremely dangerous to allow full anonymity of, of financial transactions in in an online environment. And the reason is because in an online environment, there are no boundaries. There is, there, there's nothing stopping you from a global, uh, a global, uh, almost like a effect on, on these anonymous payments that can be coming from anywhere. The, the physical dimension of cash and other valuable things that we have, that we are able to handle like diamonds and things like this, 
uh, are today used for criminal purposes, of course, like money laundering and so forth. But because they are physical, they have this physical limitation. So you actually have to transport them. So, you know, if you have if you have five million euros in cash, it's going to be a pretty big uh, briefcase, uh, no matter what is the denomination of this of the of the notes that you're using. Now, imagine if you have that briefcase of five million euros in a digital format where you, you just basically press a button and it's instantly in the other side of the world. And it's fully anonymous that creates a very dangerous environment. So I think this uh, that's not something that we should be striving for uh, in any, any shape or form, and that's why we have regulation uh, around this. However, the, um, the privacy of transactions is a whole other topic. Uh, having private transactions is everybody's right, uh, uh, at least in my opinion. The ability to basically transact with, uh, between individuals without being worried that there is uh, somebody is watching uh, over your shoulder what, what actually is happening is important. So with the emergence of, of properly constructed digital identities, we are actually able to achieve a very privacy protected system where the day-to-day -day transactions that we do can be fully private and only if there is some kind of criminal, criminal activity uh, associated with it then you can uh, find out who did what uh, with whom, but only for those transactions that are under suspicion. So again, if you're if you just uh, achieve, really want to have private uh, money movement, that can be achieved and should be a minimum requirement for any financial system, as far as I am concerned. But it's it's just we have to also understand that there's a lot of bad things happening there. We need the mechanisms to protect uh, the laws uh, or, or the. Uh, Law, laws and regulations that are, are defining our current system. Okay, so on the other hand, uh, in, in your opinion, uh, what are some of the most promises use cases for mobile money and digital financial services in emerging markets? And how do you think technologies can help to drive economic growth and development here? Yeah, so the, the, uh, the mobile money journey in emerging markets uh, has been going on uh, ever since uh, M-Pesa launched in Kenya uh, a long time ago. And uh, we've seen the, the, the evolution of these services happening in a very, very tangible way. Something that started from a basic uh, ability to deposit cash and then uh, uh, send that money to another uh, person uh, in a digital format over a mobile phone has now turned into uh, services that allow people to actually do things like accumulate wealth, uh, plan their own uh, financial well-being, uh, even do uh, lending uh, and and payments uh, uh, in, a, in a installments, basically, allowing them to access completely new, new ways to deal with, uh, deal, deal with money and, and uh, accumulate wealth effectively uh, in these markets. The, uh, the move from what we call fi from financial inclusion into financial well-being is a very tangible thing uh, that we're seeing. And the, uh, uh, it's not only about being able to transact, it's also about being able to actually grow together with the economy, not be excluded from the growth uh, of the societies uh, uh, around these people and being able to provide services that make that happen. The, the use cases, of course, are familiar to all of us, uh, all of us who have uh, ever bought anything lately. So things like buy now, pay later uh, is, is a big thing right now. This allows people to break uh, larger payments into installments uh, over time uh, quite easily and having access to uh, easy easy credit uh, for times when when you need more money than you have at hand at, at any given time. And having that available in, a, in an affordable, affordable way uh, is, of course, an important uh, 
enabler for um, for small for small businesses and uh, individual entrepreneurs, for example. The uh, the savings elements are of course also important. Sometimes you you want to be able to put your money uh, in a place where they actually accum accumulate interest and, and grow over time, uh, and this this allows uh, even gener generational wealth uh, to be accumulated uh, over time. These are uh, you know basically use cases that we are all accustomed uh, when we are uh, talking about banked economies. But again, uh, having these services available for, for people who are uh, underserved by banks uh, has been a significant move forward. Yes, so still, there's only two parties in a house. So services like savings, investments, and loans are services that we uh, who, who live in, in places where we all have bank accounts, all have access to the banking services, are quite well familiar to us. But the uh, but in these economies where uh, banks are, are have a, are not able to serve large parts of the population, it is the mobile money services uh, that are now making all of these familiar use cases reality uh, for these people as well. Okay, so the last question for you is of a personal kind. It is, what would you be doing in your life if not this right now? Oh, uh, probably I would be in uh, somewhere warm, somewhere nice, like Barcelona, uh, but maybe maybe not doing a podcast interview, even though this is quite fun. Uh, so again, I would be enjoying life uh, somewhere warm, uh, probably uh, enjoying good food, which is another uh, big favorite uh, thing in my life, of course.